kids and fruit, vegetable, and sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. Does past COVID infection protect against reinfection? A new treatment for Parkinson's disease. And are the health and nutrition claims of infant formulas correct or incorrect? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. And Rick, of course, we're going to start with our COVID material. That's in the Lancet. Despite vaccination, many people get infections. And the real question is, once you've had a COVID infection, does that prevent reinfection? What these authors did was they did a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at 65 different studies from 19 different countries. And they looked at all the different variants of COVID, the original ones, but also the newer Omicron variant. And here's what they discovered. If an individual was infected with COVID, over the subsequent year, there was about a 75 to 80% reduced rate of reinfection. That's about the same efficacy as it is with vaccines that we're using. However, it was a little bit less effective protecting against the Omicron, about 45 to 50%. But here's really the important thing, is that regardless of what variant you had, an infection protected you about 90% from having a very serious COVID infection, including hospitalization or death, regardless of what the variant was. So this suggests that infection, although we don't advocate for it, is just as effective as our current vaccines in preventing reinfection. That's a whole lot like glass half full, glass half empty, so that if one becomes infected with COVID, the notion that that's protective feels good. What about vaccination in that scheme? A couple of things. Many countries, for example, the U.S. and Australia, when we're having people moving in and out during traveling times, we demanded that people have proof of vaccination. Other places in Europe said, listen, you don't need this vaccination. If you've actually been infected, that's just as good. It wasn't just effective immediately, but even as long as 40 weeks, it was just as protective. That suggests to me that we need to relook at our vaccines and what we're demanding of individuals. The second thing is it really behooves us to look at the variants and how infection will protect or not protect the subsequent variants as well. One of my questions about this, and of course it's a science question, is what is it about this virus that makes it so wily in terms of durable immunity? Certainly we are confronted with viruses all the time, and many of them we do have very robust immunity against. Immunity typically wanes, whether with this virus or any other virus. The development of variants has made it a little bit more wily, a little bit more elusive. It's interesting because once you've had an Omicron infection, it protects against subsequent Omicron infections and even the variants of it as well. Let's turn to the New England Journal of Medicine. I said a new treatment for Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease, of course, a movement disorder, extremely troubling for many people. For a long time, for people who have had a tremor that really is very difficult to manage, there have been implantable devices that help ameliorate some of the impact of that. And it turns out that there are a lot of people who are very resistant to getting those devices. And I guess I can understand that. I'm I'm not sure I would want a bunch of electrodes and so forth implanted in my brain either. And also some people don't live in areas. Those devices have to be updated pretty often and people don't live in proximity to a place that's capable of doing that. And so this is another strategy that's being used to treat this very troubling tremor that many people with Parkinson's disease have. It involves ablation of the internal segment of the part of the brain called the globus pallidus 
on the opposite side of where the symptoms are most severe. They enrolled in this study 94 patients, 69 of whom were assigned to undergo this ablation using ultrasound, and 25 who had a sham procedure. In their active treatment group, 69% of them had a response as compared to only 32% in the control group. 39 patients in the active treatment group who had a response at three months and also who were assessed at 12 months, 30 of those continued to have a response. So it seems like it's fairly durable. Adverse events relative to their active treatment group included dysarthria, gait disturbance, loss of taste, visual disturbance, and facial weakness. That sounds a little more dire than the actual numbers bear out. So it seems like it may be another part of the armamentarium in terms of trying to manage these troubling motor defects that are seen in Parkinson's disease. So as you say, it's an alternative doing ablation, which is pretty much you heat a part of the brain to kill a part of the brain to see if you can make the movement disorders better. The downside of that is it's not reversible. With the implantable electrodes, you can stimulate, you can turn that up or down, you can modulate that. But this, once it's done, it's done. You know, as you mentioned, about 70% of people have an initial response of those, about three-fourths have continued response. So it's not really quite as good as the electrical stimulation therapy, but it does provide an alternative. Yeah. And so I guess for those people who really don't want something implanted in their brain, it may be a reasonable alternative. I would also note that when I reflect on having this treatment, it kind of makes me a little squeamish. The patients were awake and they were also off their medications. And that must have been a pretty tough thing. They have to aim to reach a target temperature in this part of the globus pallidus of 55 degrees centigrade. That's pretty hot. I just wonder about sort of some of the experience of having this particular treatment in employed. Yeah. And again, they don't address how the patients feel during this time. They do address some of the side effects. But as you said, this is done in an MRI magnet so they can monitor the temperature. And oftentimes these crude methods end up being more refined and we get better at it. And I'm hoping that's what will happen here. Let's turn now to the BMJ uh, issue of international import, and that's health and nutrition claims for infant formula. Make no doubt about it, for infants, human breast milk is the optimal source of infant nutrition. They're at a, obviously a growing age, and they're developing their immune system, they're developing their neurologic system and their motor system, try to avoid infections, and human breast milk is the best way to feed infants. Sometimes that's really not possible. Oftentimes, however, it's a choice by the mother. It's a choice of convenience. If you decide to use infant formula instead of breast milk, you're trading off some of the benefits of breast milk. And unfortunately, what happens is the infant formula manufacturers oftentimes make claims about their formula. It boosts the immune system or it advances neurologic function and development of the child. It provides necessary vitamins for their growth and their development, just as good as human breast milk. So there are a bunch of claims. And what these authors sought to do was say, okay, let's look at the claims and see if they're valid or not. And is there scientific evidence behind them? So this is an international study of 15 different countries. And what they found out is that most of the products carried at least one claim. And by the way, there was a wide range of different claims, even though it was the same ingredient. There were also multiple classes of ingredients for the same claim. When in fact, when they looked at the scientific evidence, there was very little scientific evidence at all. And most of it were considered to be high bias studies. That is studies that were funded by the food company and or by investigators that received money from them. Most of the claims really aren't valid, which is of general concern, as you said, worldwide. 
This is very, very troubling to me because as we know, when manufacturers go into countries and advertise all of these things as it's more convenient, it's just as good as breast milk or it's better than breast milk, in fact, in terms of neurologic development or what have you, it really reduces the rates of breastfeeding in those places. And it it seems like, and I don't know if there's any data in this study, that it's those places that can least afford to have this happen where mothers adopt this practice of employing formula versus breast milk. It's interesting because they looked at different countries, low, middle, and high-income countries, and the claims are made regardless. They're ubiquitous. I don't think our listeners would appreciate it, and I didn't until I read this article, is that suboptimal breastfeeding is estimated to result in about 600,000 child deaths from pneumonia and diarrhea each year. And furthermore, when women don't breastfeed, it increases their risk of developing an ovarian or breast cancer. So the excess deaths from that is about 100,000 per year as well. Can infant formula manufacturers be forced not to make these kinds of claims relative to their products? Well, in fact, there are two things. There are mandatory information requirements, but they're not being enforced. That enforcement really needs to take place. Well, speaking of things here in the U.S. and also of children, let's turn to Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, MMWR, and take a look at fruit, vegetable, and sugar-sweetened beverage intake among young children, those one to five years of age. This is, of course, a national survey of children's health, and they have 18,000-plus folks who are represented in this particular assessment. They were looking, as I said, at the consumption of fruits, vegetables, and sugar-sweetened beverages nationally and by state. They inquired of parents about the preceding week. One in three, approximately, children did not eat a daily fruit in the previous week. Nearly one half did not eat a daily vegetable. More than one half, almost 60%, in fact, drank a sugar-sweetened beverage at least once. And then our same old geographic regions of the country that we finger all the time relative to cigarette smoking and obesity are also represented well here. There was considerable variability around the country. And so, for example, the consumption of a sugar-sweetened beverage in the preceding week was about 40% in Maine and almost 80% in Mississippi. It's looking like there are lots of places where intervention is important. You mentioned the regional variation, kind of states, particularly in the Southeast, we're talking about Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, even Oklahoma, had some of the lowest rates of intake of both vegetables and fruits among kids. Aside from the geographic variation, you won't be surprised to know that Black children had a lower incidence of eating healthy, and also kids that had marginal or low food sufficiency. They were not only less likely to have fruits or vegetables, but more likely to consume sweetened beverages as well. Where the rubber hits the road here is that we know that fruits and vegetables are important for the development of the child. Excessive amount of sugar-sweetened beverages increases the risk of diabetes and obesity, even cavities as well. We need to do a better job of providing these foods through federal and state programs, mandating things at school as well to make sure things are healthy and do a better job of educating. Unquestionably, those are all things that need to be done. And in fact, you are aware, I know, of last week, the federal government made an announcement relative to school lunches and in trying to really change the nutritional content of those to help to promote some of these objectives. 
And Elizabeth, unfortunately, the population that you're talking about in this particular study are kids that haven't even made it to school yet. Definitely need strategies at all kinds of levels to help overcome this problem. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.